You are listening to the Magic Drop Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Cornish, actor, author, and creator. Join me on this journey of growth, joy, and love. I'm here to bring you dope content to expand your mindset and uplift your energy. Why? Because it's your epic life. Super excited for this episode, guys. Today on the show, I have Delara Bakeki. Delara Bakeki is a neuroscientist who specializes in the therapeutic use of cannabis and psychedelics. She has a PhD in pharmacology for her research exploring medical cannabis for childhood epilepsy. Delara also works as a research scientist for the George Institute. She manages science communications for Silo and Aussie Biotech, developing new treatments for mental illness inspired by psychedelics. She's a nature lover. She's passionate about health, experiences, creativity, and human connection. Also, a quick shout out to ACAST for hosting this potty. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands we meet on today. I'd like to pay my respects to my elders past and present. Hi, Delara. Thanks so much for joining me on the Magic Drop podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I saw your talk at Splendor in the Grass and I absolutely loved it and I was super excited to talk to you further. So my first question would be, what inspired you to dive into the therapeutic uses of cannabis and psychedelics? Uh, Amazing. Thank you so much for having me first very quickly, Isabel. Um, But straight on to the question... So it was interesting. I guess it was a little bit of personal experience um, and timing, which things in life always are. My background is uh, I'm a neuroscientist who specializes in drugs. Um, And around 2014, 15, my dad was battling cancer. And it was sort of in his later stages of care, sort of the palliative stage. And I was his secondary care after my mum. And I would give him all of his medications. And it was just, it was really difficult watching him suffer and at the same time in the news um, medical cannabis was popping up as a treatment for this particular case like palliative care and it was being really helpful and I felt quite frustrated that we couldn't try it at that phase Um, and I guess at the same time there was other media about medical cannabis saying um, it was cannabis oil was beneficial for children with seizures and I guess serendipitously Um, My research group around that same time uh, was fortunate enough to get a very generous donation from the Lambert family, which set up the uh, Lambert Initiative for Cannabinoid Therapeutics within the University of Sydney, which is a medical cannabis research initiative. Um, And it just seems like all the styles aligned and I felt like I had to pursue this topic that felt very important at the time. So that's how I got into medical cannabis. And then I guess more recently, last year, um, I got into psychedelics and it's a topic I've always been interested in. As I said, I'm a neuroscientist who specializes in drugs and drugs, I think, are really useful as medicines, but they're also very useful tools that can teach us a lot about our mind. So psychedelics have always been interesting in that sense where you can take something and hallucinate and travel the universe and other worlds. Um, but last year, and I guess the last few years have been quite difficult for a lot of people with, you know, lockdowns and COVID and like a lot of my friends were struggling with their mental health. It was taking ages for people to see therapists and whatnot. Um, And unfortunately, I lost a friend to suicide last year and a different friend to drug overdose. And it kind of shocked me awake. Like I felt like I'd been plunged into cold water. Um, Like clearly there was a mental illness issue going on and the resources that we had weren't 
good enough? And I just thought it's similar to the medical cannabis situation, like we can do better. And is there anything that I can do to help? Um, and simultaneously, at the same time, in the news, there were really promising results um, from studies looking at psychedelics for mental illness. And I was ready for a change in my career at the same time. So I was very lucky to get the job that I did get. I currently work as a uh, research fellow at the George Institute um, for Global Health, and they're a nonprofit research organization doing amazing work. And I work with some of the best researchers in Australia who focus on clinical trials and psychedelic studies, and they're public good oriented. They just want to conduct really solid studies with these compounds and get them out to the public if they're proven safe and effective as fast as possible. So my role is to like support clinical trials in this area, uh, clinical trials of psychedelics, and my main role is pulling in more funding. Um, so if there are any sort of philanthropists out there who would like to help support um, and advance therapeutic use of psychedelics, please get in touch. Awesome. Amazing. Thanks for sharing. And when it comes to psychedelics, what are psychedelics and are ketamine and MDMA considered psychedelics? Yeah, good question. Uh, I think when people think of psychedelics, they think of like LSD or magic mushrooms and that's sort of our classic psychedelics. Um, the term psychedelics means mind manifesting and that's sort of anything that alters your consciousness. But typically the classic psychedelics are those that co cause hallucinations um, and they can be sort of natural or um, made in a lab. Like uh, we say psilocybin for that's the active compound in magic mushrooms. So if you hear me saying psilocybin, that's my science brain talking. So excuse me. And then we've got LSD that's made in a lab. Um, and most of these are 5-HT2A serotonin agonists, again, just scientifically speaking. But psychedelics are now being used in sort of a more loose term. Um, and they sort of include any drug that can alter your consciousness. And that includes drugs like ketamine, which is more commonly known as a horse tranquilizer, and MDMA, which is ecstasy. And interestingly, some people even consider sort of dream states to be psychedelic. Yeah, right. Interesting. And um, I've looked online and I've also listened to different researchers and podcasters talk and some of them use the term drugs and some of them use the term medicines to describe psychedelics. What do you like to refer to psychedelics and cannabis as? Guess what the most commonly used drug in the world is. It's actually caffeine from tea and coffee. So I think it's the way we think about drugs and medicine and drugs in Australia has a stigma around it because I think in the media when they speak of sort of recreational use of these compounds they say drugs but then medically they're called medicines while in the US a pharmacy is called a drugstore. So I like to use them interchangeably to try and sort of reduce that stigma and get people to think about you know what are drugs what aren't drugs or the way there is no good or bad drug it's sort of how you use them another fact or question i like to ask people is like what do you think the most harmful drug is or another way to ask people that is sort of what's more harmful uh, alcohol or heroin mm, alcohol most people will say heroin but it's actually alcohol when they've done the studies and looked at the harm that the drug causes to the individual and society alcohol is actually ranked number one mm. so yeah, it's just sort of how we think about how we use drugs. Yeah, that's really interesting. I did actually come across some information that was saying that caffeine's the most abused drug in the world. And then here I am sipping on a cold brew coffee. <laughs> it's all, uh, and this is how we think about medicine, actually. It's the, the balance between the risk or the harms and the benefits. And 
caffeine causes more benefits than harms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And could you give us a brief rundown of the history of psychedelic science for anyone that's interested? That's a winning. Okay, I can try. Um, so psychedelics, technically, they were used by ancient cultures, uh, you know, the indigenous people and First Nations for you know thousands of years. Um, but they entered Western medicine in the 40s. LSD was accidentally discovered, and that's a fun story. But in the 50s and 60s, LSD and psilocybin from magic mushrooms were being used as psychiatric, uh, psychiatric tools, and they were being very helpful. But then in the late 60s, they sort of escaped the lab, and people were using them recreationally, and Woodstock was happening, and there was a lot going on in culture. Um, so in like 1970, they were banned and sort of research became very, very difficult to the point that it, you know, basically stopped. Um, in the 70s, MDMA sort of appeared and that was being used by psychiatrists. So a lot of people don't know that MDA was actually a medicine or being investigated as a medicine before it became a party drug. And then in the 80s, that was banned. Um, but there were some amazing researchers who had been exposed to um, these drugs as psychiatric tools and just couldn't let it go. And they're like, you know, we can't stop doing this research. These tools are so helpful. So in the 80s, they continued to do this research. And one of those people was uh, Rick Doblin, who runs MAPS. That was at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Sciences. Um, And he set up that nonprofit and just they just slowly and quietly just kept trying to conduct the research. And that's sort of been going on for the last two decades, but in the last five years, there's been an absolute explosion of research and media and funding. And now there's, you know, I think there's like 300 clinical trials for psychedelics around the world. There's all of these companies uh, set being set up to discover new psychedelic drugs. So it's been sort of, there was a little bit of a blip and then like it's been a slow burn and now we're absolutely rocketing into the future. Yeah, awesome. And I love maps. You can actually subscribe to get the new research sent into your email. So that's a great idea for anyone that's interested in learning more. And then more on to, you touched on some of the benefits of psychedelics and why are psychedelics important for treating mental health? Uh, I guess we can go into sort of how they work because that'll explain why they're being used because like why are party drugs being used? Don't we have anything better? Um, And we kind of don't. So our current drugs, which are uh, antidepressants, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, um, they're okay. For some people they work. For most people they kind of don't work and then they have like really negative side effects. And, you know, you take these drugs daily and they have – A lot of people report they have numbing effects and they only really treat the symptoms. So what psychedelics promise or, you know, what they suggest to do is to get at the root of the problem and get to the cause. So uh, MDMA is being used to treat PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, where usually someone will go through a traumatic event and then uh, has difficulty recovering from that event and they'll have nightmares and insomnia and they'll socially retreat um, and kind of live in that phase for a long time and what MDMA is doing is it reduces your fear response and it increases your trust so you're able to bring up these memories and actually process them to the point where you can let them go Um, because what your brain does is it's trying to protect itself so it'll just it'll just block out things that 
you like literally it literally wipes memories um and it's obviously very difficult to get over things when you don't know what's going on um and then psilocybin from magic mushrooms is being used to treat uh depression uh, and like anxiety and depression and what that does is it kind of it shocks you awake you know how I was saying you know last year I had that experience that kind of like it rips you out of the everyday monotony and kind of lets you see again for the first time Mm. um and it can help people sort of have realizations and change their perspective and what I really like to explain is like we're using these tools, well, sorry, we use these drugs as tools, but you can have other experiences in your life that are psychedelic-like experiences, like near-death experiences or traumatic events. I think that's more of a bad trip-like psychedelic event, but you can have these experiences in life that you're never the same before and after, and they help you realise things about your life and help you make changes. And this is what psilocybin is doing. Um And what it does is it does it in a sort of a loving and safe context. That's what's good about these drugs is they also kind of increase your trust and empathy um, and reduce your fear so you can have these very difficult conversations with yourself, with a therapist in a loving environment. Um, Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. I had one of those psychedelic-like experiences when I was recovering from an eating disorder, I suffered from an eating disorder for many years when I was younger. Yeah, I had that that psychedelic-like experience through that traumatic period of my life. And then I also have ADHD, so I'm very interested. That's why I love to keep in in touch with all of these studies. And like I was reading some um, more studies over the weekend about how LSD is being trialed for ADHD. So that's pretty cool. I'm really interested to to keep tabs on that. So when it comes to cannabis, do you think that the stigma around cannabis is changing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was funny. I was thinking about to sort of my understanding of drugs. And when I was younger, you know, drugs are bad. There's no alternative. And I remember that classic ad where they would crack an egg into a frying pan and be like, this is your brain on drugs. Um, And then I guess more recently, I now get ads on Instagram for medical cannabis. And it's just, you know, and I'm not that old. And in my lifetime, like there's been this massive shift in understanding um, of cannabis. And it's so funny because if you think of like, this has kind of changed now, but before 2020, the average medical cannabis user was like someone in their 40s, they had a job they had a university education and they were married. And it's like, I guess, not what really people think of when they think of cannabis. Um, and I love to think of like old people using cannabis. And yeah, no, it's, it's a lot more accepted, a lot less feared. Um, and I think that's in response to the evidence and the education that's coming out. Because it's, it's such a natural human response to be scared of what you don't understand, especially when people are telling you to be scared about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a nice, it's a pleasant change to see. Yeah, and it's so interesting how we can be, you know, scared of using these plants that are natural from the environment, but then we make so many different things in labs with chemicals and things like that. And it's great that scientific research and studies are starting to incorporate more plants and like coming back to that connection that we are all everything and how we can use these plants and psychedelics to you know enhance our health and well-being and help us to overcome things that trouble us in our lives yeah I absolutely agree with you Isabel also the fact that there's just 
there must be so much like ancient wisdom trapped that we're not accessing. Like if you think of Chinese medicine, you know, it's such a broad area of medicine and we don't actually, like some of that stuff must, like anything, you know, there's probably stuff that's really useful, most of it's okay and there's stuff that doesn't work. But if we could improve our sort of our relationship and conversations with other cultures and First Nations people, it would be beneficial for both parties having that increased communication. And is there any particular studies in Australia that they are using cannabis for? So in Australia, um, medical cannabis, so I'm just going to take one step back and talk about medical cannabis because people think of it as maybe one drug, but actually it's a whole class of drugs because the cannabis plant contains over 400 different chemicals and each plant will have those chemicals in different ratios and these chemicals will have different effects. And the main ones are like THC, and some people might know that, that's what gets you high, um, and it has its own medical benefits. And then the other one is CBD, and like that does not get you high, and that's been studied for a lot of different things too. So in Australia, there are only two approved forms of medical cannabis, um, and that means that they've sort of gone through the clinical trials and have been scientifically approved using gold standard studies to be beneficial, and like no one can dispute that. And that's, uh, it's being used for spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis and that's sort of muscle rigidity and then childhood epilepsy. So they're the things that have been proven, but it's actually, if you look at uh, how it's being used by the community and the research, it's mostly used for chronic pain, um, sleep, anxiety, uh, as I said, palliative care. Um, So they're the main ones, but I think going on to that, there's like new research emerging. And this is sort of the stuff that I'm finding most interesting are things like psychosis, um, autism, Parkinson's and dementia. I came across an article on your Twitter that was talking about CBD and THC. And there was a note saying that sometimes they can have opposing effects. I found this really interesting. Could you dive into that a little bit further? Yeah. So, uh, They have different effects on your brain, and I think this is maybe where it originates from. So you've got, uh, they're called receptors, and they're kind of like buttons or locks, and then drugs will interact with these buttons. You know, they'll push them, they'll open them, they'll do things with them. Um, And so THC activates this button or, like, opens this lock, while CBD, like, it covers it and doesn't let it be activated by other things. You know, it inhibits it, it blocks it. So THC has... um, psychotic effects or like psychosis effects while CBD actually the evidence is suggesting that it has anti-psychotic effects and it's actually being uh, investigated in trials for psychosis which I think is fascinating sorry just to like to follow on from that I guess with community use you'll hear people say this as well like um, I guess back in the day cannabis was just what you grew it was you know mostly THC some CBD but like a well-rounded mix of everything but with sort of um, what is it called like selective breeding or extractions you can get really high THC products or THC only products and people are reporting they don't actually enjoy the experience because it causes paranoia anxiety psychosis because actually in the olden TH, sorry, in the olden cannabis or the more traditional cannabis, you had the CBD there that would kind of mellow that experience out because CBD has, you know, anti-anxiety, anti-psychotic effects. 
long story. But <laughs> I had I was living in America where cannabis was um, legalized, and I was using the THC and CBD pain cream, and it was amazing. I just absolutely loved it. Just rubbing it on my body, my body would really relax. So I absolutely loved that. It helped me so much. Amazing. I love these stories. And this is like sort of the best part of doing a PhD in, med- in medical cannabis was just talking to people. And I feel like everyone had a story. Like it was personal. They're like my mom, my grandma, my auntie. And it's just, yeah, I love hearing the patient perspective. Mm-hmm. And in Australia, how many studies are currently running on psychedelics? We've got, I think at the moment, there's about 15 in different stages of um, running, like some are still being set up and some are close to being complete. Most of the research that goes on in the world focuses on psilocybin from magic mushrooms, but um, they are looking at things like um, LSD, DMT. Um, I don't know too much about those because most of the research is on psilocybin and then we're looking at MDMA as well. And is there like phase one, phase two, do you do, yeah, how does that kind of treatment protocol work? Okay, the drug approval process. Um, so for a drug to be approved, and for once a drug is approved, a doctor can prescribe it. And for a drug to be approved, it has to go through three stages of clinical trials. And a clinical trial means a trial in humans. So phase one is usually a safety study and it'll be really small and they'll test the drug in people that don't have a disease. So like our strong, healthy people, they start at really low doses and they just kind of see what effect it's going to have. And once it passes phase one, it means that drug is, that drug is pretty safe. And then they move into phase two, which is a small group of people that had the disease that they're trying to um, understand whether that drug works for um, and then once it passes phase two, that's quite promising. And then it'll move to phase three. Uh, and phase three usually, so phase two is usually like tens of people, uh, and phase three will be hundreds of people. And then by that point, you know, you've got this broad population of people. Uh, and if the drug works in, you know, hundreds of people from lots of different sites, it's pretty promising. And then once it's gone through phase three, and there might be like, it won't be just like one phase two, one phase three. There'll be a few in each phase. And then once it's gone through all of that, it's it's safe and effective, and then it usually gets approved. And then once it's approved, you can prescribe it. When it comes to talking about psychedelic treatment in Australia in particular, in these studies that you're doing, how long does someone usually, how long are the sessions for a person? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about psychedelic clinical trials because... I keep forgetting that, yeah, <laughs> I know I'm further along in the journey than other people are. Um, so they're not used like a common antidepressant. So normally you sort of take a drug every day. But what psychedelics, the way they're used clinically is they're given two or three times in a course of psychotherapy. Um, and they're sort of being used to catalyze the benefits of therapy. As I said, they put you in that state where you can actually process things. Um, and you'll have a few prep sessions because for a lot of people, this will be their first psychedelic experience and it's like nothing else that they've experienced. So it's preparing the patient for that. And then they'll have the dosing session. And that involves taking the psychedelic in a safe space with two therapists. Um, and you usually, they usually have eye masks on that cover their eyes and they'll be listening to music. So uh, psilocybin will last 
it's like a, a full, it's like about six to eight hours or like four to eight hours, depending on the person. So it's a full day's experience of that psychedelic trip. And then they'll have integration sessions afterwards, which is where most of the work happens. And they'll go through what they experienced in their trip and try and make changes to integrate what they learned into their life. Is it dependent on the individual how many times they'll do that treatment where they'll have the psychedelic experience with a therapist in there? So at the moment, the protocols are two sessions for psilocybin and three for MDMA, and there's no follow-up sessions at the moment. Um, and with those trials, they, I guess you have responders and non-responders. So for the people it works, it, for the people that it works in, that's great. And for, unfortunately, it doesn't work in other people. Um, and there's no current protocol to follow up in them with dosing. That might change in the future. But I think that's an important fact to raise as well. That in some people it's so promising. Um, and we haven't actually gone through the results, so we can do that as well. But in some people, like, it's not going to work. And in some people, it might actually make things worse. So I think that's just something people need to be prepared for. It's not it's not all rainbows and sunshine. Do you think you could touch on some of the results that you found interesting? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So um, going back, I guess, to antidepressants, they take about six to eight weeks, no, four to six weeks to start working or like to see an effect. And they only have marginal effects as in they're only slightly better than placebo. And they work in about 30 to 50% of people the first time. And then if you go, if you try like some uh, others, sorry, if you try other antidepressants, it's about, it works in about 60% of people, which is okay. Um, But as I said, they have side effects and they take a really long time to work and you're meant to take them every day. In psych- with psychedelics, with MDMA for PTSD, for example, they're getting major reductions in PTSD symptoms, so like 50% reduction in about, you know, a few weeks. And then this, it's, I think after the treatment session ended, um, 60% of the people who went through the MDMA treatment didn't meet the criteria for PTSD anymore. So they lost their diagnosis. So they were like technically... Cured, Amazing. right? And that's not something you see every day. And in the placebo group, that was 30%. And then what's really interesting is they followed these people up 12 months later and the effects were still there. So it's suggesting that it's like it is really getting to the root of the cause and fundamentally changing it. And you're seeing the same things with psilocybin for depression um, and depression and anxiety as well is it's you're getting most people responding and they're showing responses within the first week which I say like that's so different to four to six weeks um, and it can be enduring for months. They haven't gone further on to see how long these effects are because these studies are new and emerging and, yeah, we don't actually know how long these effects are going to last and if, if most people are dropping off, then I guess there is an argument to have that redosing session and maybe it's something you do every few years or, you know, it can be tailored to the person hopefully. And with the studies, does every individual in one particular study take the same dose or is the dose altered for each individual depending on what their past history is? Interesting. I think most people are taking the same dose. With MDMA, that's about, I think it ranges between 80 to 120 and that's usually because I have three sessions, I'll just start with that lower dose and then adjust it as needed for the same person. So there's a little bit of an adjustment. But for psilocybin, um, you're getting 25 milligrams and that's 
they call it a hero dose. And that is a very, very, very high dose and not what is used recreationally. Based on what we know, and we don't have that much good information about what people are using recreationally, but it's like people will use about five to 10 milligrams. So it's like, you know, potentially five, you know, two to five times greater than what people are using. And at that point, a little bit of dose adjusting isn't going to change anything because those people are experiencing complete ego disillusion. Like they completely leave this planet in their head um, and travel, you know, their internal universe. Yeah, the ego disillusion is so interesting and also the reports of people saying that um, I saw one actually in one of your talks online, the reports of people saying that they can compare their psychedelic experience to something of a childbirth and that's incredible. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. That was from these studies that they did following up. People say this is one of the most profound experiences of their life. And as you said, compared to the birth of a child, like because the very first studies, they followed up five years and they, they, they still said it was one of the most amazing and important things they've ever done. Uh, the TGA rejected an application for the therapeutic use of psychedelics in Australia. I think that was in 2019. And what influenced this decision? Did they need more studies? Did they require more studies to be done? Yeah. So I guess if we talk about how drugs get legalised um, for medical uses, currently psilocybin and MDMA are Schedule 9, and that means they're prohibited substances. That means there's no medical use and they're dangerous. And then once there's studies that show they have medical use, then they can't really technically be in Schedule 9 anymore and they drop to Schedule 8. And Schedule 8 is controlled substances and it means they have therapeutic uses but have potential for abuse. And drugs like morphine, um, ketamine, uh, amphetamine, cocaine, so these drugs are Schedule 8 and so is medical cannabis, as in like they have uses but they can be risky. At the moment, MDMA and psilocybin are in Schedule 9 because they haven't been scientifically proven using, you know, the gold standard results that they have used. In saying that, they've been granted breakthrough therapy status by the FDA, which is the U.S. Um, regulatory body, and they recognize that the results are really promising and they, there is a great need. So they're trying to fast track this approval process and so far it's going well and they think MDA will be FDA approved mid-2023 and that psilocybin will follow a few years after if the studies hold up. Like they're, they're going, they're in that, that last stage, that phase three stage of trials. Right, and then going back to your question, yeah, the TJ rejected it because the evidence just wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. And it must be so hard because everyone's experience is so different depending on, you know, what they've gone through without their life and then also how they respond to the drug and you know that's so interesting to follow those cases and to see all the different experiences and that must make you know the research really amazing because everyone has their own story about the psychedelic experience but it must also make it like vary a lot yeah absolutely it's so interesting it's like people talking about their dreams except that they're all kind of they're not the boring dreams like that's the thing you can have a good psychedelic trip or a bad psychedelic trip, but they're never boring. So yeah. it's always interesting hearing people's accounts. <laughs> Just have a question on the bad trip, good trip. I've actually heard some people talk about one particular type of acid being a dark acid and other acids being light. And this, you know, really interests me because LSD is just one 
chemical or compound, correct? So is it possible to actually alter LSD to make like a dark acid or a light LSD? So I've never heard of this and this is fascinating. Um, You're completely right in the sense that if it's just LSD, you can't have dark or light, but you can modify drugs. So it can be sort of an analogue. Um, which isn't LSD anymore, and that could have similar effects but different effects, and that could have negative effects. But usually with psychedelics, what you expect kind of comes true. It's it's a little bit of an amplifier. So if you think you're going to have a bad trip, you're more likely to have a bad trip, and that's what's really important with psychedelic trips. I mean, I just also, psychedelics are illegal, and I need to say this, there is no legal way to access psychedelics unless you're going through clinical trials but if people are choosing to use it I also feel responsible telling that I have a responsibility to tell people that there are factors that will determine whether you have a good time or a bad time and they call this set and setting and that's sort of your mindset that you're in like are you feeling good in your person are you having a good time do you think you're going to have a good time and then you're setting so your physical environment and the people you're around because um, psychedelics make you so susceptible or so vulnerable as I said they take your fear response down and they take your guards down so they kind of put you into like a childlike state and uh, at the physiological level they do as well and you just kind of got to think about that scenario I guess like do I trust these people around me? Like if I was a child, like would I leave a child here? You know, like that's not quite right, but I just like be cautious, be sceptical, be critical because the consequences can be really dire. Like people can have bad trips that I wouldn't say cause permanent damage but definitely cause long-lasting damage and people need years and years of therapy to undo what was done in one day. And that's like intention setting. And I mean, on a really micro level, that can be related to you know, everything we do. Before I go to a music festival, because I am in such a like varying environment where like so many different things could happen, I always set an intention. That's almost like the set and the setting. And it's like, where, like where's my mindset at? And yeah. what kind of time do I want to have today? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I agree with you completely, Isabel. And I believe it, like a little bit in like manifesting mm. where – you know, whatever energy you put out into the world, you're more likely to attract that energy. And if you, because I guess, you know, we're humans and we interact with other humans and we're in a lot of situations that are ambiguous. So there's, you know, someone doesn't quite smile at you and you've got two ways to interpret that. And the way you interpret that can like lead you down a path that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. So try and like always give everyone the benefit of the doubt and always try and find the positive in the situation. I feel like that's more likely to end up in positive outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about changing that perspective. (laughs) You uh, mentioned that you do research for the George Institute, which is a non-for-profit research organisation. And why are these non-for-profits important in the field of science? Mm. They are really important in the sense that they kind of fill the gaps that traditional funding bodies don't. So our government they're doing an amazing job of trying to pull in more funding for um, things like mental health. But there are so many different people doing so many different studies. They kind of have to pick and choose what they um, fund. Um, and sometimes really important studies just don't kind of hit, 
you know, hit that criteria. So it's really important to have nonprofits that can kind of fill those gaps, especially for things like MDMA and psilocybin. So drug companies won't pursue these drugs. Like they won't push them through to um, approval. So MDMA and psilocybin are both being pursued by non-profits because drug companies won't do it because the process is really expensive and you can't profit off these drugs because psilocybin is a natural product and you can't patent a natural product. Um, and MDMA, as I said, it was actually first synthesized, first made in 1910. So it's like long gone past its patentability. So they're not they're not able to generate profit. And it's not necessarily that drug companies are evil. But so as an example, getting a drug completely from the beginning all the way to the end takes, it costs about, what did they say? It was $300 million to $3 billion is what it can cost, one drug. So wow. it's not that they're necessarily being, you know, greedy or evil. And, like, a lot of those drugs fail. So, like, you, they will spend hundreds of millions of dollars on something that goes nowhere. So it's just we're in this weird system that can definitely be improved in a lot of ways. But nonprofits are super important um, because they can pursue things without necessarily needing to think about profit and they can think about public good, which is, you know, what the George Institute does. Yeah, which might also reduce bias and some other little things. Yeah, exactly. But they're all important in the big ecosystem we live in. And when it comes to legal mushies like Lion's Mane, Rishi, Chaga, do you have any particular favourites? I don't actually know too much about Like I've seen these legal mushrooms but I haven't studied them too much. The ones I have tried are cordyceps. Oh, yeah. And they're, they're the ones that... They're like they uh, they're like a fungus, and they can grow out of insects' brains, but they're meant to mm. have really energizing properties. So I have this amazing friend. His name is Jim Fuller, and he's the founder of Fable Mushrooms, the um, mushroom-based meat alternative. And they're, they're amazing food. But he took us out foraging for mushrooms, and we're collecting mushrooms. And he uh, exposed us to these cordyceps, and it's just such an amazing story. Um, but yeah, we tried some of those, and they were yeah, they were interesting. Yeah, I've used those before when I'm training for half marathons and marathons and stuff. Um, that's meant to help uptake your oxygen, the amount of oxygen you can draw in and give you more energy. Yeah. So they're pretty good. And then I've also used the lines main when I'm like shooting a television show to help me with my lines. And I've found that re really beneficial, but it needs to be taken like every single day consecutively. So the Michael Pollan documentary that has come out on Netflix, is there any ripples or any negatives to the psychedelic spotlight of this series? Mm. A little bit. Overall, it's been really good. I think it's just fascinating that we live in a world where we can have these open discussions about drugs and have a bit more of a sensible discussion because the reality is it's not good or bad, it's how you use them. Um, and it was generally factual, but it wasn't completely representative. And this is the thing that's I'm a little bit cautious about um, and they're calling it the Michael Pollan effect where he's describing these amazing effects and people are hearing all of the positives and maybe not necessarily listening for the negatives or the negatives aren't being presented um, and people are desperate for treatment like as I said our mental health system is trying its best but it's it can be improved and when people hear that you can try something once or twice and you're cured, that's very appealing. So what it's caused people to do is um, try and seek these medicines out. And at the moment, there's no good pathway. Like there's only a few clinical trials 
um, and it's not legally available and won't be for years. So in that gap, people are turning to underground sources like underground therapists or they're self-medicating. And this is where the danger comes in because they're tools. They're, they're really powerful and they can be good or they can be bad. And I like I like to think of it, as you said, like giving, like it's some people describe it at the level of giving birth and it can be like that. Like it can be life-changing and it can be, amazing or it can be dangerous and like giving birth I think in reality people don't really describe what actually happens behind those closed doors and for some people it can be awful and for some people it's great and at the end of it you know most people would do it anyway but it's not something that you would do without the equipment or the training and Mm -hmm. I know people are desperate but just be careful because it can have you know permanent or long-lasting effects and Overall, we just need more accurate representations. Also, I should say that psychedelics are not recommended for people who have a history of psychosis or a family history of psychosis or bipolar. So mm-hmm. if you fall into that category, stay away. Um, and I think what's difficult is for people who are in their 20s because psychosis emerges in your 20s. So if you're younger than that, it can be you don't know what you're playing with, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good note. Thank you. Like talking long term, does the USA need to legalise the therapeutic use before Australia will or can follow? Is that usually how it works? They don't have to. So we've got our own regulatory body, the TGA, um, and they will make their own decisions. And sometimes things are, you know, registered here and they're not over there or vice versa. Um, so no, they don't need to. But usually what happens is America's just a bit faster on things. You know, they've got more people, they've got more power. Um, so I think they will do it first and then Australia will follow. And it's sort of a good strategy for Australia as well to kind of see, let it play out for a little bit. Is it actually safe? How's it going? How are they doing it? And then we follow behind. And then how can we stay in the loop with the clinical trials that you're doing with the George Institute? Yeah, there's no, it's actually pretty underground at the moment. Like things haven't emerged. Um, So most of the clinical trials we're working on are spread out all over Australia and there's actually no good source bringing them all together. If you want to look for clinical trials, you go to clinicaltrials.gov and then you can type in the different psychedelics you're looking for or your um, sort of condition that you're looking for because you can also participate in non-psychedelic trials. Um, Other than that, so I work with Paul Lichnitsky from Monash University and he's actually set up the first psychedelic clinical research group in Australia and he's running quite a few trials. So I think if you go onto his page, it's a good way to stay up to date with a lot of them that's happening, but a lot of them are coming through. So I keep thinking this, I'm like, I should create a resource where people can just stay up to date with everything that's happening. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. And they can also follow you on Twitter because you you retweet a lot of um, different studies and articles, which is really interesting. So I'll include all the links to um, your work in the show notes. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming. That was so interesting and such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for sharing your stories as well. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you so much for being a part of this journey. If this podcast resonates with you, I would love your support. So please share, subscribe or leave a five-star review. Don't forget, you can find all the detail and links for this episode in the show notes. You can connect with me via Instagram at Isabel Cornish or via my website, isabelcornish.life. 
For more uplifting content, I highly recommend checking out my book, The Why, Healthy Habits for an Epic Life. Thanks for listening. And remember, stay magic.